It's been several weeks now since we were in our series in Zechariah. That's kind of the way things go with evening series, especially this time of year. We have a lot of interruptions. Um, we're going to spend a couple evenings in Zechariah now this week and Lord willing next week. And then we'll hit another gap because of Christmas and New Year's, things in between. We are in the middle of the series, though. It might be hard, remember, because of the weeks in between, but we're in the middle of a series of eight visions that Zechariah had on the night, really, of the 15th of February. We can track it down to the day from what we were given. The 15th of February, 519 B.C., during that long night, he was given eight visions by an angel that were to be passed along to the people of Israel. Now, in previous sermons, I gave a fuller background, but let me remind you that the, just the simple things is for five months after a, a pause of 15 years where Israel had been scared by oppression and really dropped into sin after coming back from Babylon, the exiles had returned, began building the temple, laid a foundation, and then for 15 years set it aside. Well, five months earlier from this night, they had begun to rebuild again. They had got back to the job and, and they had restarted the work and they were demonstrating now a commitment to God. God had challenged them that they were, had spent 15 years building their houses but not his house. Well, they're building his house now and God, in response to their commitment, has demonstrated his commitment to Israel. He's done that by showing st some stupendous things here to Zechariah through this long night of visions. We've already looked at five of the eight visions, and from those we've learned some major points that all portray God's commitment to his people. One, we saw in the first vision that God remains aware and in control of all the events that are happening in the world. That the angel of the Lord, that pre-incarnate son of God, was there in that vision, and he was showing that he is aware of what's happening and controlling the events that transpire. Secondly, we, we saw that the enemies of Israel will, will suffer God's wrath because of their rejection of God. For a while it seemed as if the um, enemies of, of Israel were getting the upper hand, but God is assuring them that would be temporary. The enemies of God will, will pay the, the price for their rejection of, of Israel, or rejection of God. Israel is God's people. And to put the stamp on it, the angel of the Lord guarantees that they will see their just due. Third major point was that Israel remains God's people. And they can look forward to the day that God will dwell personally with them again. He will come back among them and ensure their prosperity. Fourth, it was assured that all of this will come about by God's grace. Not because the people deserved it, not because they've earned it. It's not as a reward for their efforts. It's because God is gracious. And then fifthly, God himself is going to provide the power that will accomplish all of these promises. He will, through the ministry of his spirit, infuse the people with power, and these things will be accomplished. Now, we should recall that while all that Zechariah saw was future from his perspective. Much of it has happened in our past, but yet much remains future. We're kind of in the middle of his visions as far as our location in time from what he saw. Much of what he saw still remains future from our perspective, but there were some near-term things that now we can look back and were accomplished within Zechariah's time. From our perspective, the wonderful future depictions that, that we see 
await the millennial kingdom of Christ. There's things that point to when Christ will be on the, the, the scene. The angel of the Lord, when he returns as that victorious Davidic king that we talked about this morning, when Jesus Christ sits on the throne, that's the future that much of this points to. Zerubbabel serving as the governor at that time, and Joshua, who was the high priest at that time, within the temple they were building, those two individuals would be the first step in a, a progression that would lead to the millennial kingdom. That is the picture that Zechariah is being given in these visions. So the final cum culmination is far in the future, even from our time, it's still in the future. They saw enough steps fulfilled through Zerubbabel and Zechariah in their immediate future that they as people were to have total confidence in what Zechariah saw. Well, where we sit in the middle of all this, we too are to have total confidence in everything Zechariah saw. We should even have greater confidence because we can point to some of the things in the past that have occurred just as God predicted. We can have total confidence the things that are still future will happen just as, as fully. Now this evening we're going to look at two of these visions. To visions number six and number seven. They're both short and, and they're related to each other. It makes sense to look at them together. Although I will tell us up front, they're, they're filled with some rather strange content. And that's something we have to be prepared for. Probably we've all had dreams. Let me just use this as illustration. We probably have, have all had dreams where we can understand the elements of the dream, but at the same time, we admit the elements don't make any logical sense. Uh, I remember one of the dreams that terrified me as a, a kid for a long time. In fact, I still remember it clearly now, and that's 50 years later. Uh, a polar bear was hiding in my closet. I opened the door and he, he was standing there reared up on his feet ready to get me. And somehow I managed to pull out a bottle rocket that I had in my coat and lit that bottle rocket with a match that somehow I already had lit. I, I don't know. And shot that polar bear in the eye before it could attack me. There you go. Here's an example. You can understand the elements, right? Everything I said in that dream you understand the elements. You can picture the polar bear, you understand a dark closet, bottle rocket, everything, the elements make sense. But you put it together, there's no logic to it. Well, the significant difference between the, the biblical vision that, that we are given here by God is that it communicates truth. The only thing my dream communicated was probably fear of the dark closet or something. I'm not sure what it was communicating to my mind, but, but what God is communicating is truth. There, there's a message contained within it. There, there's really no message in my polar bear dream. The visions that we're looking at this evening, they have important messages, but they're, they're wrapped in these elements that kind, somehow defy logic at times. Still, we can recognize the similarity and, and, and not miss the all-important distinction that there's there's a message contained in the elements without the logic that we may see missing in a dream. Does that make sense? Similar but not the same. As I said, we're looking at two visions this evening. Both contained in, in Zechariah chapter 5. The, the first vision is in verses 1 through 4. I'm calling this vision the flying scroll. The, the visions that we've looked at so far, they, they follow a, a rather consistent sequence. Zechariah has been escorted through 
the various visions by an angel who has spoken with him throughout. This angel draws Zechariah's attention to a number of things that Zechariah needs to pay attention to, and then the angel explains things as Zechariah goes along. Well, tonight, I want to walk through both of these visions, the, the two visions we're looking at. I want to walk through them rather slowly so that we can see this sequence of, of steps unfold of the Zechariah and the angel interacting. So we'll begin with the vision itself, the vision proper in verses 1 and 2. Then I, that Zechariah, lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, there was a flying scroll. And he, that would be the angel, said to me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. So even though it's been several weeks for us, from Zechariah's perspective, he's just finished the previous vision. Uh, we have probably forgotten that vision by now, but for him, that was just moments ago. He, he's probably looked at the ground as he thinks about the things that he, he most recently saw, and then he, he lifts his eyes up again, and behold, there's another vision. This time, he sees this large scroll flying through the air. Like I said, we, we can understand why he sees, right? We can, we can picture a large scroll flying in the air, even if it doesn't make any logical sense how, how that might be the case. The scroll's flying through the air all, all on its own. Nothing's carrying it along. The angel that Zechariah's been talking with, the angel there draws the details out from Zechariah by asking him the, the question that's already been asked other times in this evening. What do you see? As, as Zechariah answers, we, we learn that the scroll he envisions is not like we would normally think of a scroll. For, for one thing, the scroll's unrolled. We would probably think of scroll as two rolled up cylinders, right, with paper wrapped around. Well, no, this one's been unrolled. It's been stretched out. We, we know that because Zechariah is able to give the, the length and the width. Furthermore, I don't know if this scroll's completely unrolled, but the part that is unrolled is given as 20 cubits by 10 cubits. That's essentially 30 by 15 feet. This is a big scroll. Not the kind you would normally hold in your hands, right? This is big. Kind of like that polar bear I remember that filled my door, except this is even bigger. 30 by 15 feet. Now, a couple things to note before we move on. One, I said that it was the angel that we've called the interpreted angel and that who asked the question there in verse 2. Yet, yet notice here this, the speaker isn't identified as the angel. We're just told in verse 2, he said to me. We're, we're not told this is the angel. The, the, the absence of, of telling, naming the angel, that seems to draw our full attention to the scroll. We're not to be distracted by the angel's presence. We're to focus in on what he saw. Second, the, the dimensions, that, that large scroll, the large dimensions, 20 by 10 cubits, that's equal to a number of things that are associated with worship in the Old Testament. The, the tabernacle is, is 20 by 10 cubits. The, the porch on Solomon's temple was, was 10 by 20 cubits. It's likely that the dimensions here of the scroll are given to, to draw our mind to the mosaic system that, that's centered on the very sites of worship, the tabernacle and then later the temple. Granted, using the, the scroll's dimension to connect the, the vision to the mosaic system, that, that's a bit of conjecture. There's nothing that specifically says at this point, but 
The next verse does remove that conjecture and, and, and ties this vision to the Mosaic law directly. Verse 3 here gives the angel's explanation. If the angel explains now what he is seeing. Then he, again the angel, said to me, Zechariah, this, the scroll, is the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land. Surely everyone who steals will be purged away, according to the writing on one side, and everyone who swears will be purged away, according to the writing on the other side. That, that word that we have translated there in the New American Standard as curse, that, that's a technical term. It, it's a term that's used in Hebrew for sanctions that are associated with a covenant document. Uh, frequently in Deuteronomy, we, we find this word referring to the, the covenant curses that if Israel did not abide by the stipulations of the covenant, these are the curses that would come upon them. If they failed to obey the law of Moses, here's what would happen. So that term alone, just that word curse, that's enough to, to suggest that the curses on the scroll are attached to Israel's covenant with God because that's where the word shows up in the Old Testament uh, of course, we don't have to rely solely on the, old, on the Hebrew term here. The, the angel goes on and says that both sides of the scroll have writing on it, or at least one portion, the portion we can see, is writing on both sides that's open. It contains two curses. Two curses directed against people who commit two specific sins. The sin of theft and the sin of swearing a false oath. A curse against each of these sins is listed on one side of the scroll or the other. Those who are, have, are thieves and those who lie. Now, it's possible, as some commentators I read seem to think, that these sins maybe were the most prevalent at the time. Thieve, stealing because the people were going through a hard time and, and swearing false oaths. But I don't think that's the reason why these two sins are highlighted. Theft is a violation of the eighth uh, command of the Ten Commandments. Remember our Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the, the, the summation of the Law of Moses. The eighth one is about stealing. Thou shalt not steal. Swearing false oath, that, that could refer to the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not lie. Or it could refer to the third. Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. Well, the next verse makes it clear. It's a reference to the third commandment. Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. Swearing an untruth by God's name is what that means. It doesn't mean that, that we utter a curse word. It means we, we swear that something is true by the name of the true God when we know that is untrue. Well, the fact that the third commandment and the eighth commandment are specified here is significant. Those are the middle commandments of each of the two tabernacles. In other words, or yeah, the two tablets that, that Moses was given. In other words, the scroll seems to represent the, the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments, and it's opened up, and here we see the middle section jumping out at us. The middle section, these two commands. So these two commands then represent the, the entirety of the Decalogue, which the Decalogue represents the entirety of the Mosaic Law. So by drawing out these two particular sins, basically this scroll represents all the curses of any violation of the law of Moses. Any sin against God that's committed by Israel. That's what's under the curse here. Sinning against God according to the law of Moses. Now in 
Some of the visions, a direct statement of God is added, and that's what we have here in verse 4. In verse 4, we have the Lord's decree. I will make it, that would be the curse, go forth, declares the Lord of hosts. And it will enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. And it will spend the night within the house and consume it with its timber and stones. Look at those initial words. I will make it go forth. The Lord himself, there's no question on whether the curse that's listed there for the covenant violations will come about. God will make sure that the punishment is met to, that, to those who deserve it. God is ensuring that the curse will find its fulfillment. Well, what is the curse? He tells us the curse is the utter destruction of every sinner. There, there will be may, remain no trace of the person or even their house. This curse will enter and annihilate the person. It, it's as if the curse is a living entity, something that, that can enter the house at sundown and spend the night there consuming every trace of the sinner so that by morning there's not even a crumb remaining of, of that sinner. Now, if this had been the first vision of the night, it would be absolutely terrifying. Zechariah surely understands all too well that the people he's dwelling among, the, the people of Israel, they've sinned in numerous ways before God. For 15 years, they, they weren't building the tabernacle. They were sinners. Remember, though, God has already assured Zechariah that Israel will remain his people. He's assured Zechariah that the people will be preserved by his grace. Those messages have come already. And because of that, Zechariah cannot take this vision to mean that God will annihilate Israel. That God is going to wipe Israel from the face of the earth because of their sin, that every Israelite is going to disappear. No, in the flow of the, the visions, in the sequence of what he's seen, rather than this being a threat, this is a promise. God promises that he is going to purify his people. He will remove sinners from the midst of Israel. Rather than abandoning his people, God is committing himself to cleansing his people. Think about this from the perspective of Zechariah's generation. The, the people are working to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. They, they were still facing opposition, but they're remaining steadfast. For five months, they've been working in spite of the opposition, and their hope is that God is going to graciously dwell among them again, despite the sin-filled history that culminated in their exile the sinful recent past when they've neglected God, they're hoping that God will come back and dwell among them. So to them, to these builders, this vision is a promise that they have a reason to hope. God has not abandoned them. There will come a time that God so purifies the nation that all traces of sinfulness is removed. You won't be able to find a sinner among them. Nothing will hinder God at that point from dwelling in their midst, because a holy God can dwell among a holy people. Now, we could draw that implication out further tonight, but the seventh vision complements the sixth vision. So we'll move on before we draw this out a little bit further. The, the, the next vision is one I'm calling the flown ephah. We're, we're dealing with flights tonight. We have the flying scroll, now we have the flown ephah. 
angel is once again going to be our tour guide. He's going to direct Zechariah's attention to further revelation here, and it begins in verse 5. Look there at the initial vision. Then the angel, who was speaking with me, went out and said to me, Lift up now your eyes and see what this is going forth. I said, What is it? And he said, This is the ephah going forth. And he said, This is their appearance in all the land. And behold, a lead cover was lifted up. And this woman, and this is a woman, sitting inside the ephah. Now whether the object that Zechariah initially sees is in flight or not is unclear. It is going forth. That, that means it's in motion of some sort. What he sees is an ephah. Probably some of your versions helpfully translate it as a basket because an ephah is simply the largest unit of dry measurement they used. It was the unit they used for dry measure, but typically that measurement was done in the form of a basket. Growing up, we had a few old bushel baskets in, in our shed, in, in our barn. Well, a bushel is a unit of measure. A bushel basket contains one bushel worth of grain, and after a while, it became called just the bushel basket. Well, that's what the ephah basket was. It was, became so common as the measure that it was just the name for the basket. So that's what we have going on here. The ephah is a basket. Now, when Zechariah asks, what is it, there in verse 6, I, I doubt that he's unable to identify the basket. He'd recognize a basket. They were common. Rather, what he's asking is, what does the basket hold? And the parenthetical expression in verse 7 makes it clear that he has to ask that because there's a lid covering the basket. There's, there's something on top of it. He can't see inside. In fact, what he sees is in a very unusual lid. It's a, a cover of lead. That cover suggests that whatever is inside of the basket might be capable of escaping. So a heavy lid is, is supplied to keep the contents inside. Spotting that sight, it makes Zechariah question what's inside. That, that's a very natural question. It, curiosity is raised. What's, what's hiding? What's being hidden there? What's trapped in this basket? The answer is once more where the fluidity of images in this vision really take over. The angel tells us there's a woman sitting inside the basket. Now, there's no way a woman could sit inside an ephah basket. An ephah basket is not that big. It's, you know, a basket that you can carry. A woman doesn't fit in there. But there's no problem for an ephah basket to be large enough to hold a woman if you can have a scroll that's 30 by 15, you know, these are visions. Uh, there's, there's expansion in, in reality here. Actually, knowing what the angel said about the, at, at the end of verse 6, is more difficult than mentally picturing a woman inside a basket. There, there's discrepancies among the ancient versions as to whether they said, this is their appearance in the land, you because he uses a word for I, this is the I in all the land, or, or this is their iniquity in the land. That's some of the ancient versions say that. It's hard to understand what is he saying there. I don't have any troubles picturing a, a woman sitting in a basket, even though I have to use my imagination. Well, when we look at that last phrase, whatever that phrase means, or whatever the word is, because there's discrepancy in the translations, whatever it means is clear that this woman symbolizes something. This woman sitting in this basket is a symbol for something. 
even though the angels already spoke in verse 8, really contains the contents of the angel's explanation. The angel always comes along to explain what's being seen. So verse 8, then he, the angel says, this is wickedness. And he threw her down into the middle of the ephah and cast the lead weight on its opening. So the angel makes it clear, the woman has a name, wickedness. As soon as the lid is opened so that Zechariah can see what's inside, it, she apparently tries to escape. Fortunately, the angel is able to grab hold and throw her back into the basket, and then he puts the lid back on before she can get out. Apparently, it's a very heavy lid. She can't push her way out. Let me mention in passing, in, in Hebrew, the, the word for wickedness is feminine. Most likely, that's why a woman's used to visualize. It's not because women are naturally wicked or anything like that. Well, women are naturally wicked, so are men. We're, we're equal in that regard. But it's a feminine word, so they, it, most likely that's why it's pictured, pictured as a woman. Hebrew, like some other languages, all the words, the nouns are either ma masculine or feminine. And especially abstract words um, are feminine. So wickedness is a feminine word. At any rate, it's clear that the person trapped in the basket here is wickedness personified. If we connect that understanding then to the last phrase there in verse 6, regardless of how that phrase should be translated, we, we can understand the, the picture is, is that all the wickedness of the land has been collected and now is confined, symbolically trapped in this basket as, as this woman. All the wickedness of the land is here. But the vision is not finished. It, it continues in, in what I call the subsequent vision because Zechariah sees more. Verse 9, Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and there two women were coming out, of the wind, out with the wind in their wings, and they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heavens. Did I mention that visions have strange components? Zechariah now sees two women with wings like those of a stork flying to where he and the, the um, angel are with that basket. The, these two women, they grab the ephah basket with uh, the woman wickedness trapped inside of it and then they fly away. A little strange, right? But you can still kind of create a picture in your mind. That's how the vision works. Unsurprisingly, there has been a lot of speculation as to what these two women are. Some commentators over the centuries suggest that they're angels. Um, if so, this would be the only place, I believe, we find in the Bible where angels are, are represented as, as female. They're always depicted as masculine. So I, I don't think that's likely. Other people have argued that they're demons since they're, they're taking wickedness, they're, they're taking care of wickedness. Well, again, that would depict a demon, which is really a fallen angel, as, as a, a female. I think it's best if we simply take the women as elements of this vision. They're, they function, their function is simply to play a role in this vision, just like the scroll in the first vision was an element, like the basket's an element, the women with wings are elements. Their function is to swiftly carry the basket with the woman wickedness far away. In fact, the significance of the wings looking like storks 
is likely to emphasize that they can carry the woman a great distance. Uh, storks were well known for their long distant migration. They, they, they migrated far, far away, and so they were known for their ability to travel over large distances. So the, they're taking wickedness far from the land of, of Israel. That's what's being depicted here. As Zechariah sees the, the flying women carry the basket away, he has one final question for the interpretive angel. Look at the last two verses. I said to the angel who was speaking with me, Where are they taking the ephah? Then he said to me, To build a temple for her in the land of Shinar. And, they, and when it is prepared, she will set there on her own pedestal. Zechariah asks, where is wickedness, this woman, being taken? Since the destination hasn't been stated, all he sees is the, the, the women with the stork's wings. They, they swoop down, they grab the basket, and away they go. Well, the answer is she's being taken to the land of Shinar. Shinar is another name for Babylon. Ever since Genesis chapter 11, Babylon is used to symbolize human pride and rebellion against God. All the way until the end of Scripture, we see Babylon symbolized that way. Even in Revelation, Babylon is the symbol for rebellion against God, is the center of evil. Babylon then serves as a very proper place for wickedness to symbolically dwell until it's dealt with. Now, I'm not really sure why the New American Standard chose to translate the Hebrew in verse 11 that I will build a temple um, for, for wickedness in Shinar. Most English versions simply translate the word as house. That, that's the normal meaning of the word, is simply a house, a, a dwelling place. And I think that makes a whole lot more sense than, than a temple. It, it, to me, it seems like it goes against the flow of all of Scripture for, for God to even implicitly accept that the construction of a place to worship wickedness is acceptable. No, I think it's just a, it rather it seems to fit much better that God is ensuring that she'll be confined to a place specifically that's designed to house this lady wickedness until she can be dealt with. He is returning her, so to speak, to her place of origin. Genesis chapter 11, Babylon was the original place where man rebelled against God, where they built the Tower of Babel and, and tried to, to unite in rebellion against God. Well, now God is returning wickedness to that same place, confining evil there in, in preparation for his final stage of dealing with her. In the meantime, evil will not be allowed to dwell among his people. It's removed from the land of Israel. Do you see how the seventh vision runs parallel to the sixth? The, the sixth vision gave a promise that, that there would be a day in the future where Israel will not have sinful people living among them. Sinful people will no longer be found in the land. God will have removed them all. Well, now the, the seventh vision shows that, that wickedness itself will be removed. Clearly, these things did not happen in Zechariah's day. Sin and wickedness remained present. It was still there several hundred years later when Christ came and walked among the, the people of Israel. Sin and wickedness were not removed. Still, the, the people are assured here in Zechariah's day that God has not abandoned them because of their sin. And God gives this vision that, that they encourage them with a glimpse of what will be. There will be a day in the future that wickedness will be removed. A sinner cannot be found among you. 
Sin and wickedness was not removed during Zechariah's day. From our perspective, looking through the centuries, that day is yet to unfold. It, it has not happened yet. That, that means the fulfillment of both of these visions remains future for us, just as they were future for Zechariah. So let's ask, what's the lesson that we can learn that God shared with his people in Zechariah's day? Well, the lesson is, is simply that God will remove all sin from among his people. God will remove all sin from among his people. That was the lesson that, that God revealed here to Zechariah. There will come a day that God will remove all sin from among his people. That was a word of encouragement, as I said, for them building the temple. Well, it continues now to serve as a word of encouragement for all people who wait for that day. Between Zechariah and us, there have been centuries of people waiting for the day that God will remove all sin from among his people. We now find ourselves standing in wait for that day when God will remove all sin from among his people. Much like in our chapter tonight, in Revelation, as I said, Babylon, again, is, is depicted as the center point of, of mankind's rebellion against God. There it serves as the capital of the Antichrist. Zechariah 5 shows us that, that this is no accident. God has planned that Babylon will serve as the place where he confines wickedness so they can deal with it. We, we know that once the Antichrist settles his headquarters there in Babylon, he will not escape God's judgment. We also know that after God deals with the Antichrist, our mighty Savior will have a worldwide kingdom of righteousness. Sinners will not be allowed to continue under his rule as the righteous king sits on his throne for a thousand years. Wickedness will not be tolerated. Yet, even in the millennial kingdom, that, that's just a foretaste of, of the real perfection that is yet to come. During the millennium, there, there will still exist sin in many human hearts. There will be those who are outwardly conforming to the righteousness of Christ, but in their hearts, they'll still be in rebellion because at the end of millennium, wickedness is allowed a brief moment and mankind again rebels. But after the final judgment, at the end of the millennium, wickedness will be fully and finally completely removed from God's people. Our visions from Zechariah here, they, they point us toward that day, toward that final day when, when God's people will be free from sin. And just as they're designed to cause Zacharias and the people of his day to long for that day, they should do the same for us. We should long for the day when sin is no more. God will remove all sin from among his people. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to spend time looking at your word. Even as some of your visions are difficult to to understand fully, we thank you for giving them to us because they do communicate hope. They communicate confidence. They communicate reasons for joy because we know that they show that you are victorious. We long for the day of the future when that victory is culminated. But until that day, we pray that you would enable us to look to these truths, to be encouraged, and remain faithful in our service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.